Ken. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Linda. This is Kayla Price and Linda Hopache for New Books in Anthropology. Today, we are talking to Ken McLeish, our graduate school colleague and assistant professor of medicine, health, and society at Vanderbilt University. We're talking about his new book, Making War at Fort Hood, Life and Uncertainty in a Hi, Kayla. Hi, Linda. This is Kayla Price and Linda Hopache for New Books in Anthropology. Today, we are talking to Ken McLeish, our graduate school colleague and assistant professor of medicine, health, and society at Vanderbilt University. We're talking about his new book, Making War at Fort Hood, Life and Uncertainty in a Military Community, published by Princeton University Press. It's an ethnography of the everyday lives of people who are involved in the production of war. Tell, tell us a little bit about your personal background and how you became involved in anthropology. Sure. Um, so I, uh, uh, I think I, I got infected by social science in, um, in my undergrad years uh, at Bard College. Um, at a, it's a, a pretty small liberal arts college in the Northeast, in the, in the Hudson Valley uh, just uh, a ways north of New York City, and uh, I was actually a, a sociology major, um, and I I left uh, undergrad thinking that I wanted to go to grad school and thinking that I probably wanted to pursue a career in academia, uh, and it was largely because I just I liked the way that reading social theory uh, changed the way the world looked to me. Um, that uh, that there were, were these sort of these these explanations for things and these ways of seeing the world critically that um, far from being kind of like alienating or confusing um, actually helped the world uh, make a lot more sense to me um, and uh, uh, yeah and so I think by by uh, a decent ways through through undergrad thanks in no small part to a lot of the wonderful teachers I had um, in those years. Uh, I knew that that this kind of um, this kind of thought was something that um, that just felt like uh, like really valuable and productive activity to me, and something that um, that I was uh, uh, that I was at least minimally good at um, in a way that uh, <laughs> that I I wasn't necessarily so skilled in um, you know in in other areas. I, I've I've sometimes found myself saying that I think I ended up being an anthropologist because uh, I you know I've, I've was concerned about uh, and interested in political problems out in the world, but uh, I realized I wasn't very good at being a political activist, and I wasn't sure that I could do that great job, that great of a job uh, at being a being a journalist. Um, but in the kind of scholarly inquiry that's grounded in real world experience that you get to do in anthropology, uh, I felt like I really I really found a home and sort of found some traction. Um, and uh, I suppose saying it that way makes it sound as though anthropology is sort of a poor substitute for those other those other areas, which is certainly not at all the way I think about it. Um, I actually think about it uh, as I as I hope all of us do as uh, its own um, its own kind of uh, uh, a particular critical knowledge that has um, that has a real uh, a real role to play in um, sort of in in the broader public sphere. Uh, and uh, and I hope that that's something that, uh, that that at least some sense of that comes through in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the subject? 
Sure. Yeah. So um, I had been interested for uh, for a long time. Again, sort of starting um, starting in my undergrad years uh, in kind of questions and problems of legitimate violence and what kinds of violence was okay and uh, what, excuse me, what kinds of violence were okay and what kinds were not, um, what sorts of value was attached to, um, uh, uh, to violence when it was sort of practiced or exercised in different domains. And war in a way is, uh, is sort of an ultimate test case for that in the, you know, to the extent that it, uh, is defined by the licensed production of violence, uh, uh, the, the licensed production of, of these kinds of acts that under all other circumstances would, um, uh, would be illegal. Uh, but, um, uh, but that in the, in the instance of war waged by states, uh, sort of takes on actually the, uh, or, and, and kind of literally embodies and materializes, uh, uh, right and reason and law and, um, and, and gives those things, um, uh, sort of material substance, uh, uh, often in the form of terrible destruction. Um, and, uh, the fact that that, that contradiction is so sort of so intense and so poignant. And yet we, uh, we have all these kind of cultural narratives for, uh, for sort of talking, um, uh, talking past it or talking around it in various ways. And, and that problem is something that's been interesting to me, um, uh, just sort of, you know, since I, I think since I started um, uh, uh, thinking about social science and reading social theory, uh, and not least because I was involved in um, some uh, anti-war organizing and activism um, in my undergrad years, uh, and then also, you know, graduated uh, college right into the very beginning of the war on terror in 2001, and uh, and also sort of around that time felt increasingly sort of confused and kind of frustrated by uh, the language that was available to talk about war, um, whether in terms of, of kind of substantive public debate uh, or as, uh, as active critique. Um, and uh, the fact that, uh, that discussions about, uh, about war and what the exercise of military violence meant um, uh, especially as they were were playing out um, in the, the early 2000s, um, just seems so sort of bound by all of these cultural these these sort of standard cultural uh, common sense frames about um, about organized violence, like the idea that war is somehow autom- automatically about something, uh, and that the, the experiences and practices that make it up um, are automatically meaningful in these sort of cliched and um, uh, and, and expected ways that we're all kind of used to hearing about. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that I felt like was, uh, was missing from those discussions was, uh, was pers- some perspective on what it is that the actual activities of war, um, consist of, uh, uh, for the people who live with them for the, uh, live with them firsthand and the people who are actively, um, involved in producing them firsthand. And, uh, whether again, and whether this be uh, uh, civilians living in the midst of war zones, or whether it be um, uh, informal combatants or um, or professional combatants, as um, uh, uh, as uh, as might be the case, um, and 
And this was particularly interesting to me, I think, because of a lot of the rhetoric that, again, was sort of there floating around in, in the public sphere um, in, the, uh, uh, in the early 2000s, um, uh, whether it was pro-war or anti-war rhetoric, uh, the role that, uh, that this figure of the troops um, seemed to play and, uh, and the imperative to, uh, uh, for one thing, sort of the, the, um, the political imperative to support the troops um, no matter what, uh, but to not necessarily... Uh, uh, sort of delve in um, in any in any curious or critical sense to the questions of uh, what it is uh, what what activities and practices actually sort of define the lives of um, of these troops uh, in the name of whom all these various political claims are being made and um, uh, one of the things that that helped me think about that a lot was just uh, just reading military memoir, which is something that I had also gotten interested in in undergrad and found myself kind of coming back to again over those uh, those periods of time too. And thinking of um, of works like um, uh, like Michael Hur's Dispatches or uh, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried or um, Anthony Swafford's uh, Jarhead uh, and uh, and a lot of others. Um, Accounts that aren't even necessarily particularly pro-war, anti-war in their particular stance, uh, but rather um, define this kind of realm of experience that is uh, uh, is both is, is incredibly uh, powerful and intense, um, but is often um, sort of isolated from or insulated from the the more kind of conventional public discourses about war. These sort of these ideas of what war. Uh, is uh, is about in some um, in some straightforward sense, uh, and so that that disconnect between what between the actual activities that um, that uh, that make up the practice of war and the ways that we talk about it uh, and and the stories we tell about it, uh, that um, uh, that tension was uh, just seemed like an increasingly interesting and significant um, problem to me, and something that I. Uh, that I wanted to spend more time thinking about. And so, how did you come to write this particular book? I so I I was fortunate in that this was the project that I was thinking I wanted to do when I got to grad school, and um, so fortunate in the sense that it turned out to be viable, and I didn't get burned out on it, and I didn't have to radically reformulate it in in the middle, and and all that stuff. Um, and it, and uh, really, too, I feel I feel incredibly fortunate that it is still something that um, that interests me a lot, and that I anticipate uh, sort of occupying my interest for um, for a long a long time to come. Um, so, uh, for various reasons, uh, I ended up at uh, uh, at UT Austin for graduate school, and it was uh, uh, really fortuitous in um, in many ways. Uh, not the least of which was the fact that. Uh, in Austin, uh, I was essentially right down the road from uh, Fort Hood, which is, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, like, you know, from, uh, uh, or as, as I imagine you already knew, but like, uh, uh, like I described in, uh, at some length in the book, too, is this place um, that is, it's one of the largest military installations in the country, and it's one of the 
um, the busiest and most important points of deployment for um, uh, for U.S. forces, uh, actually in all sorts of locations overseas, but uh, for the wars in um, in Afghanistan and especially uh, especially the the war in Iraq when it was ongoing. Um, huge amount of uh, uh, soldiers from uh, the uh, the unit stationed there deployed regularly to Iraq and. Um, uh, and then National Guard and Reserve units also uh, uh, would come, and as they still do uh, from all over the country, for extensive pre-deployment training at, at Fort Hood before going to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or Kuwait. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I was uh, uh, I was really lucky to sort of have this um, uh, to have this location uh, within within easy reach. Um, and uh, and that's that's a big part of what produced the book. We'll start off with the prologue, which is provocatively entitled "Don't fucking leave any of this shit out." Can you tell us what this means and how it came to shape your approach to telling about the lives of the people in Fort Hood? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and this is, I guess, this really is sort of a good. Uh, a good place to start from. Um, so I guess maybe I should explain for folks who, uh, who haven't read the book that, uh, that, that, uh, that title is a quotation from a soldier who in the book I refer to as dime, um, who, uh, uh, was a tanker who served in, uh, in Iraq as part of the, uh, did several deployments that his, his, um, his last one as, a, as part of the surge in 2006. And, um, uh, and he, uh, he related that line to me, um, in the course of the sort of more, uh, uh, general exhortation of, of frustration that he, um, that he was feeling. He, uh, he had been, he had survived being blown up by incredibly powerful IEDs several times. He had, uh, a whole complicated set of injuries that he was struggling with, including, um, uh, uh, what are called barotraumatic um, injuries. These are orthopedic injuries that come from uh, the force, uh, the force of, uh, of blast waves um, from uh, uh, from uh, roadbed bomb explosions, and uh, uh, in addition to traumatic brain injury, which of course has um, these various uh, uh, sort of complicated neurological and, and cognitive um, problems that um, that can really uh, impede the the um, uh, the function and experience of people who were afflicted with them, uh, as was the case with Diamond. Uh, he had also been diagnosed with PTSD, um, and uh, uh, and so as a result, he was um, uh, he had been assigned to uh, uh, to what's called a, a warrior transition unit at Fort Hood, which is a, a um, uh, essentially a sort of medically oriented holding company that um, soldiers uh, soldiers are assigned to when they become too ill or injured to do their regular jobs, and uh, they instead get assigned to this alternate uh, uh, unit so that an able-bodied person can um, can take the take their place in their regular unit um, and be able to deploy. Um, and in the meantime, their job is to uh, is to essentially sort of maintain this rather busy schedule of um, of going to the doctor and meeting with caseworkers and meeting with various different physicians and therapists and uh, and pharmacists and so on um, and processing paperwork for uh, for in in Dime's case discharge from the army um, 
uh, getting his, uh, uh, his injuries and afflictions um, attended to. Uh, but this is a, a, an incredibly sort of a complicated and bureaucratized and, uh, and slow-moving um, uh, process, uh, in large part simply just because of the nature of the, the institution. You know, nothing, um, uh, nothing necessarily directly to do with the, uh, uh, the poor intentions of, of uh, the folks who are directly involved with it, but simply um, uh, a kind of chaotic and, and fragmented system that, um, that Dime was, uh, was in a position of moving very slowly through. And, um, uh, and this, this situation for him was, uh, was the cause of tremendous uh, uh, frustration and, uh, and distress. So sort of in addition to, um, uh, to his physical injuries, uh, which were, uh, you know, in their own terms, very difficult to live with and hard to diagnose and hard to recognize, hard for the doctors to figure out how to treat. Um, in addition to his uh, his psychiatric diagnosis, which um, had, uh, uh, you know, has these these symptoms that um, that go with it that were tremendously disruptive to his kind of everyday experience. Um, in addition to the circumstances in his. Uh, in his personal life, um, he was uh, 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 his his wife had divorced him and, and was living with his kids in another state, um, and uh, uh, and uh, the the sort of the loneliness and personal upheaval that um, that went along with that. Um, in addition to all of those things, he he sort of found himself in the middle of this um, this uh, like I said, kind of confusing and bureaucratic and. Um, fragmented system that was meant to uh, meant to care for him, meant to um, to treat his injuries, meant to figure out how to compensate him and help provide him with livelihood once he left the military, uh, but that uh, uh, that it was in general just sort of a, a challenging and um, an overwhelming uh, experience that added uh, a whole other sort of layer of stress and frustration to um, to his life, and uh, and I think that that. Um, uh, so, so talking to Diamond, and this is um, uh, just Diamond's story in particular, and the way that he, uh, the, the way that, that when we met and spoke, and uh, the, the way that he laid all these various factors out, uh, sort of in, in such close proximity to one another in our conversation, I felt for me really crystallized a sense of how it is that the um, the impacts of war are these things that come from uh, from all sorts of different uh, directions. You know, they don't just come from the enemy on the battlefield. In Dime's case, they, a big part of them came, uh, came from there. Uh, but that there are all these other ways in which, um, uh, in which Dime was sort of uh, rendered uh, profoundly vulnerable to, um, to different forms of harm, different kinds of coercion, uh, and also just sort of different, um, different forms of, of misunderstanding or misapprehension. And, uh, and that all of these things, as he as he shared these stories with me, you know, as he as he sort of you know moved from sharing the story of his uh, his divorce to his um, uh, his PTSD and traumatic brain injury symptoms to um, uh, to uh, stories of of surviving IED strikes and seeing uh, seeing close friends die in Iraq, um, that all of these things sort of uh, uh, kind of stacked on top of one one another as. Um, uh, as this tremendously complex constellation of effects of war, um, and that the the sources of of harm and distress that he was confronting, again, like I said, didn't didn't just come from the battlefield, but came from the military institution itself, and came from the way that 
Dime understood himself to be uh, to be recognized or perhaps misrecognized by by the broader world, and um, and so that was uh, uh, that was what I understood him to be uh, to be communicating with this injunction. Don't don't fucking leave any of this shit out, um, and uh, and that was and that was what I wanted to try to communicate. Um, at the at the prologue, um, it, it, it's a claim that I also tried to make with a, an appropriate level of modesty, too. Of course, right? I mean, um, you know, we all <laughs> the book's only two hundred pages long. Uh, <laughs> there's a, there isn't room for everything in there, uh, but um, but also just sort of on a on a uh, 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 on a different level, the fact that you know that ethnography is always a always sort of a partial. Uh, a partial process, partial in the sense of of um, its interests and its sympathies, but also partial in uh, um, uh, in the sense of uh, uh, you know what it is that it's um, that it's able to include or its aspirations to comprehensiveness. But what I what I took from that uh, from um, uh, from Dime's exhortation was this sense of don't don't leave out anything that uh, that I understand to be important to my experience. You know, keep uh, keep all of this stuff in here, keep all of it in view, uh, make all of it part of the story of what uh, of what war is about, um, and uh, that uh, uh, and that, that really is what I've what I've tried to do with the book. You could perhaps take us through uh, chapter by chapter and really give us a sense of how you were thinking about structuring the book and your conceptual arguments. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so uh, one thing I should say is that the, uh, I did, I didn't write or, and certainly didn't think of or conceive of the chapters in the order in which they appear. Um, and, uh, uh, and I felt like, I felt like in a, in a way writing the, writing the dissertation and then, and then sort of writing the book from it or producing the book from it, um, was an exercise in that, in the sort of the ethnographic project of kind of making your object by writing about it. You know, you just sort of, you start writing, you see what comes out, you see what comes out next, you see what comes out next. And eventually you have, uh, you, you, uh, you don't just describe, but you also kind of discover the shape of an object, uh, through, through doing that, um, and, uh, and so it, many of the chapters are are there uh, uh, because they they represent ideas that just seemed persistently striking to me throughout the course of the uh, of the field work and uh, or, or sort of arose in, in different ways at different times. Um, and uh, but uh, but as I as I put them together, um, I started to. Uh, to think of kind of what I wanted um, the um, the overarching logic to be. Um, so like it talks a, a bit about in the introduction, the notion of, of uh, vulnerability became incredibly important to how I was thinking about uh, a lot of the experiences that, that folks were relating to me. Um, and it's an idea that I take from, uh, from Judith Butler, from her, um, from her work in uh, precarious life and uh, frames of war uh, talking about the, uh, just as a way of, of talking about uh, both embodied and collective, um, human experience in relation to structures of power and the fact that, uh, 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 that vulnerability is something that characterizes a whole lot of, uh, of, of political experience, um, 
characterizes it uh, at the at the bodily level, at the collective and interpersonal level, in the ways that um, that vulnerability is both sort of um, uh, uh, mitigated and accentuated through um, through attachments between persons and, and within groups, um, and then also sort of at the level of recognition and representation, and uh, again being sort of uh, vulnerable to um, to misrecognition or to misunderstanding, uh, or in, uh, e- even even to the extent of uh, of how the value of one's life is understood. Um, and so, I really liked the the way that this uh, this concept sort of brought together these uh, bodily and social and uh, and representational and um, and political registers uh, in in this really sort of concentrated way and um, uh, and kind of and provided such a such a great vocabulary for talking about the relationship between those different registers sometimes without even necessarily having to distinguish between them um, and uh, uh, and so, I, and I, so I realized as I was working that a lot of the, the different things I was interested in, whether it was the question of, um, you know, what was the significance, uh, you know, how how was it that soldiers responded to civilians saying to them, "Thank you for your service," or uh, what's going on for soldiers when they talk about the um, uh, the potential uh, frailties and weaknesses of their um, their their armor and equipment, um, or uh, what's what's going on in folks' uh, experiences when they talk about being at home while a loved one is at war and, and sort of living in uh, uh, in fear of, um, uh, of of hearing the phone ring or of hearing a knock on the door that's going to um, uh, that's going to bring news of um, of harm or death and uh, uh, and so vulnerability uh, was a was a thread that really sort of um, helped connect uh, all of the uh, uh, kinds of experiences and phenomena, and so, uh, so as I was trying to figure out how all these parts um, came together, uh, I think what I what I sort of ended up with is a, a structure um, of the the chapters or of the of, of the ethnographic chapters. Sort of once um, once we get past the uh, some of the background material and um, and kind of setting the scene at Fort Hood uh, is this sort of. Um, uh, th- these chapters are arranged in a way that kind of uh, uh, arcs through these various different levels and registers of, of vulnerability and kind of beginning um, in uh, in chapter two with the discussion of the actual sensory and embodied experiences of deployment, um, including these questions about armor and equipment, but also heat and weight and exhaustion and um, embodied uh, tension and fear and vigilance uh, uh, so starting, um, you know, starting with, uh, with those things, with those, those forms of vulnerability that are, um, that are sort of most directly associated with, um, uh, with the, the, the firsthand practice of, of making war in a combat zone, um, starting with those things. Then in the next chapter, uh, kind of moving on to uh, what some of those, uh, bodily and affective impacts look like, um, uh, uh on the home front as it were, um, Looking at, on the one hand, the interaction of of, uh, uh, of soldiers with military medical um, with the military medical apparatus uh, in terms of uh, a diagnosis of, of physical injury and um, and psychiatric injury and ways that um, that these uh, sort of directly uh, embodied vulnerabilities are uh, multiplied and given new meaning and assigned new significance um, on uh, upon their interaction with the uh, um, 
uh, with these sort of uh, biopolitical schemes that are meant to uh, uh, that are meant to kind of manage and and care for them. Um, uh, but you know, as as I discuss, also looking at the ways that those um, those mechanisms of care and management also sort of produce uh, potentially produce new forms of harm and new forms of vulnerability um, in the uh, in the course of their work. Um, and then also sort of on the on the interpersonal uh, register, looking at um, ways that uh, that vulnerability sort of extends um, beyond individual bodies, not just insta- into institutions, but also into intimate relationships in terms of um, the uh, the communication and the sort of the, the the way that the vulnerability of the soldier's body abroad in uh, in the war zone extends um, extends back to uh, uh, to the home front, uh, to this sort of um, affective and experiential vulnerability of those people who are close to soldiers. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's sort of moving from the battlefield uh, and then into these, these um, kind of uh, more directly embodied um, modes that are, uh, that are sort of there on the, on the home front and that were very prominent um, in the uh, in the conversations that I had with people and seemed to occupy a lot of their attention. Um, and then moving, uh, in a way, sort of moving outward, um, uh, from those immediate bodily registers, uh, in the next two chapters to talk about some of the broader, uh, the broader frames in, uh, in which this vulnerability took, took shape. Um, so first in the, the chapter on love, um, looking at, uh, these, um, uh, these incredibly affirmative forms of attachment that um, that people expressed both um, with one another, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, expressed in uh, both in their attachments to the, the institution of the military itself and to their fellow soldiers, uh, but also um, uh, also to their uh, to their families and kin, and how the the idioms of each of these uh, each of these modes of attachment kind of bled into one another. Um, and that they they sometimes represented uh, uh, um, competing um, forms of attention or attachment, and sometimes sometimes overlapped with one another. Sometimes interacted in in uh, strange or uncanny ways. Um, but uh, uh, but just sort of exploring in that chapter the um, uh, the notion of vulnerability as a as a kind of um, as something that that dwells in intimate relationships. Um, and, uh, and various forms of intimacy, both with, within and outside of um, kind of conventional kin intimacy. And then in the final chapter, um, looking, uh, looking at this question of, of uh, sort of recognition the, um, and the, the kinds of value that's assigned to, uh, to life or uh, to life endangering labor. And, um, and the idea that this constitutes a, a form of vulnerability as well, that the um, you know the the soldiers' uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, potentially mortal um, embodied labor is something that is necessarily translated into uh, various ideas of um, uh, uh, of, uh, of kind of cultural and political value, and uh, translated in very lit- literal ways into material value in the form of wages and compensation and um, and things like that, and. Uh, uh, and, and here, you know, sort of coming back to that that rhetoric of of supporting the troops and the idea of the soldier as this kind of this figure that's sort of so um, so laden with uh, associations and meanings and um, a repository for all kinds of uh, 
uh, valorized um, uh, uh, valorized traits, but also um, you know anxieties and caricatures and uh, and all the rest. Um, uh, just looking through uh, uh, through that lens at um, at sort of what uh, what the experience is of inhabiting that figure and having it sort of um, imposed upon you uh, uh, at the same time as you're also sort of potentially uh, uh, making sense of it for yourself in, in various ways. Um, uh, and there too being sort of uh, uh, vulnerable to, um, uh, uh, to, to misrecognition in, um, in certain ways. You do bring it back home in the postscript. Um, can you talk a little bit about the concept of so-called resiliency? Sure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and this is, this is something that, that I'm, I'm actually, um, uh, continuing to work on now. Uh, I, so, uh, so that, that title for the, um, for the postscript, um, comes from, uh, uh, some of the rhetoric that I saw being deployed to talk about the, um, uh, how it was that uh, that folks at Fort Hood were carrying on in the wake of the the 2009 um, mass shooting there, and uh, and I had uh, I had wrapped up my my field work quite a, a more than a year before the shooting happened, um, though I did visit the base a couple times um, after it happened. Uh, but I one of the things I observed in um, just in sort of reading a lot of the media coverage about it was that there was uh, sort of in first there's this kind of uh, uh, broader irony that um, uh, that this terrible and destructive and um, uh, uh, an incredibly violent and upsetting event um, uh, that that happened there uh, and that that truly did have a, a huge impact on folks in that community. And it was really, it was, it was devastating. It was frightening. It was, uh, it was overwhelming to people. Um, but it was, it was nonetheless a little bit ironic that it, it took this rather rare and exceptional event to bring attention to uh, the more kinds of um, uh, the more uh, chronic and ongoing um, uh, kinds of burdens that had been placed on that community, uh, not just by a single event, uh, but, but by, um, you know, but by the previous 10 years of, of, uh, routine work of, uh, of war making. Um, and one, one way that, uh, I saw this, um, uh, this irony taking especially acute form was in this idea of resiliency, which, um, is something that, uh, it gets talked a lot about in, um, in psychology, but it's also, uh, it's also a, um, a concept that, uh, that has a life in, uh, across a lot of different disciplines in um, uh, in systems analysis and uh, science studies and environmental science um, all sorts of uh, of, uh, of different fields that uh, many of many of which have very little to do with um, with human behavior or human experience but it's this it's you know this um, this general idea uh, of um, uh, of of the human capacity to sort of bounce back from um, from adverse experiences, uh, and it is, you know, in its way, a pretty uh, a pretty hopeful concept. Um, but it's, uh, uh, I think, as I say in the in the conclusion, um, the mechanisms that we um, that we live with in our society 
that, that, that organize violence and organize the distribution of harm, um, they, uh, those, those mechanisms rely on the fact that human life is resilient, you know, that it's possible to, to discipline human bodies and subject them to harm and, uh, and make, um, make objects and instruments of them in various ways and have them perform those functions. You know, that's, uh, uh, you know, life is resilient in, um, uh, in that way. And the, uh, uh, the structures of power and, uh, uh, and harm that, um, that we live in the midst of really depend on, on that capacity. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I'm, uh, I, I was interested in the way that the, um, that, uh, what I, what I thought of as a really kind of a somewhat facile, way of talking about the idea of resiliency in this context um, uh, in a way sort of serves as a distraction from those bigger dynamics of, um, uh, of organized harm. Uh, because if we locate the ability to endure uh, just in individual human bodies and human psyches, uh, you know, it really, it kind of lets us off the hook of having to look at what sorts of organized structural conditions are in place, making that harm um, uh, uh, you know, creating the, the conditions of possibility for that harm to begin with, um, and uh, and I'll just say that this is a uh, uh, an issue that I think is especially important because the the concept of of resiliency um, is being increasingly and actively deployed by um, uh, by programs within the military as a uh, a way of trying to sort of um, uh, uh, preempt. Uh, uh, traumatic stress among service members, and uh, there's a, a range of different programs. The, um, the I think the the largest one and the one that's received the most attention is the Army's program, which is called Comprehensive Soldier Fitness. Uh, and the idea is that by engaging in this sort of proactive resiliency training, um, soldiers will be less prone to develop post traumatic stress disorder um, in the uh, in the wake of um, uh, of of uh, trying and traumatic experiences, and this uh, uh, this program, like uh, like most resiliency training programs, um, has aspects to it that doubtless are helpful to uh, uh, to quite a lot of people. Um, just sort of uh, you know uh, uh, a lot of uh, kind of standard um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapeutic uh, psychoeducation kind of stuff. You know how to think about your own stressors, how to, uh, how to sort of recognize your emotional reactions to them and things like that. Again, things that, um, that, are, that could potentially be quite useful and quite helpful to a lot of people. But the, the rhetoric of these kinds of interventions, um, uh, is something that at least, uh, at least in my inter- interpretation, um, sort of depends on, uh, uh, on, as with the concept of resiliency more generally, sort of depends on moving responsibility for uh, for how one uh, uh, for, for how how uh, uh, bodies and minds respond to harm and respond to stressful circumstances. Um, moving that responsibility from um, from the structures that engender that harm in the first place onto uh, the individuals that are um, uh, that are that are. Uh, uh, impacted by it, and um, uh, and it's interesting to to think about um, you know in that context uh, sort of what uh, you know uh, what what we imagine the um, the effects of war to be and how it is that we expect um, people uh, 
uh, exposed to those impacts, how it is that we um, that we expect them to behave, how we expect them to feel, um, uh, especially you know not not least because that exposure is something that happens um, in our name and that we and that we presumably bear some measure of responsibility for. Um, so uh, yeah, so so hence the. Um, uh, the sort of uh, jaundiced eye that I take toward the concept of resiliency in the conclusion. Well, Ken, we've taken up a lot of your time, but we have one final question. Sure. What do you consider the most valuable contribution of this book to anthropology? So in terms of, uh, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to make any claims about what I, um, what I imagine the impact to be, but I think part of, uh, part of what I hope for it to be um, is uh, is to a certain extent um, sort of uh, demystifying the world of the military uh, and and in some ways demystifying the practice of, of um, uh, the organized practice of, of state violence in a kind of broader sense um, uh, uh, because these are um, these are these are topics and, and sort of subject areas that loom so large within the discipline. And, uh, uh, and to show, um, you know, I think one of the things that ethnography is really good at is, uh, uh, is, and, and one of its strengths is it's to focus on actual human practices, you know, looking at how, um, looking at how mechanisms of power actually work, looking at how experiences of suffering actually are lived through. Um, and, uh, you know, without, without resort to the, um, the kind of, uh, uh, cliched narratives that we otherwise have on hand to, to make sense of those things. And, uh, and the U S military certainly has more than its cliche, than its, uh, than its share of, um, of cliched narratives, uh, 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 attached to it, um, you know, kind of uh, from from all sides and also from within, arguably, um, and those and those narratives are a big part of what uh, what kind of make it up and define it um, in the first place, too. Uh, but I think um, I think being able to what being able to look at, uh, at at the actual production of war on this kind of intimate and banal um, uh, human scale, uh, I think, is uh, a, uh, I hope it is something that will help sort of um, uh, sort of further uh, demystify and um, uh, I kind of I'm, I'm not fond of the sound of this word, but also but just sort of further humanize it um, and, uh, uh, and not not just uh, both sort of on behalf of the of the um, the people who I uh, who I write about in the book and whose stories I tell and whose experiences I um, uh, I hope are, are well well rep- represented and uh, there in the um, in the course of the book, but also um, sort of for the uh, for the production of um, of uh, uh, of anthropological perspective on um, on these issues more generally. Well, we certainly think it's a very well written and substantive book. So we awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we wish you luck in the future with your future research and um we really enjoyed talking to you today yeah likewise it's such a pleasure to talk with you guys 